I'm, it's getting worse. Stephanie, where were you? Why didn't you say, are your recorders on? <laughs> I'm sorry. I've fallen down on the job. Yeah, God. What's the man? So, Fire me. It, no, no. Stay where you are. Um, so, is the volume up? Are your recorders on? God. Oh, help. Help. Okay. Let's start. Um, Leslie, um, I, 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 I don't know if you, I hope you're hearing and um, I don't know if you can. Hi, I got you. You got me okay. Can you? Can, I, my if, battery was running out of my phone, so I had to switch. Quick. Oh, oh, there. That's you. Oh, good. Everybody, this is. Um, Thank you. Sorry, can you introduce yourself? Hi. What? Can you introduce yourself? I'm Leslie Talty, and I know Melody. Um, we were praying together, <laughs> and um, I yeah, feel blessed to be in this group. And uh, it's a lot of material. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of. Um, I think I'll just sit here and listen for a while and see. My my father was a writer, and I'm creative, so mm. this might get the juices flowing again. <laughs> so um, yeah. please pray for my son, Andrew Phillip. Thank you very much. Andrew Phillip. Leslie is a very yeah. talented artist. Yes, she oh, is. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Who said that? Was that Karen? Yeah. So you and Melody both know her? Yes. Oh, wow. I did. Yeah. I do too. That's what you did. Yeah, my, you're in my, my studio, which is a mess. <laughs> wow. We went to preschool together. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> well, just a warning, a warning, Leslie, for anybody who <laughs> enters our class and says, I'll just sit back tonight. Just know that's not going to happen. No. Now, no. Now that you said that, you can guarantee I'm going to call on you more than a few times tonight. So, <laughs> don't be scared, Leslie. Don't be scared. And I have the poem in front of me, and I'm so happy that I actually got it up. <laughs> not a tech person. And you shouldn't. You should know better to listen to me, Melody. Right now, you should be terrified. <laughs> his bark is worse than his bite. <laughs> oh God! Ask my wife. Ask my wife. Um, okay, let's let's start. Let's start. You know that we're um, we're actually getting to the end of Auden's foray. Leslie, we've been um, the the practice in the classes to begin with a prayer and then a short lyric. Okay. The the whole purpose of the course, as you know from the title, is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. So it's to read literature to see if if something is going on that makes us aware that God is in the world in some way, or Christ, um, because Christ is, I mean, God's visible in the world in a lot of ways, even if he's not physically present. But Christ is present in the world often when we don't see him in, in ways that involve a cross and a self-sacrificial love. So um, um, the whole purpose is to look at literature and see if we can see him at work in some way. All of the lyrics I, I've chosen go more directly to him. They're short. Um, one of the reasons for to, for doing the lyric is because they're always musical and it's my way of asking the class to be aware 
that all I, the claim that I'm making is that all heart, all art, has a musical center, an order, a beauty, a, to um, and always in some personal way. You know, each artist is different. So, but all art I'm claiming has a musical center. The lyric makes that obvious. It's not as obvious in narrative or drama, but it generally is in lyric. <coughs> We happen to be reading a poem that's really long. It's not a short poem, so. But it was. A, I thought it was appropriate because it's dealing explicitly with a Christian theme. Odd's poem is is dealing with a Good Friday day in modern world in our time. It's Good Friday, and the poem is structured according to the canonical hours. Prime, terse, vespers, compline, um, and um, you can you can sense. I don't think lots of people would see this, you know, they just read a poem, but if you read it and you're attentive, you become aware that there's an action, the word that I've been using in place of a plot, an action, that leads up to the ninth hour, three o'clock, to the crucifixion, and then to evening. So everything is heading towards this moment and then falling away from it. And what we've been seeing all along is that underneath all of these activities that people are involved in is this um, scapegoat mechanism, dynamism, whatever we want to call it, that most of us or all of us in our fallen condition um, create scapegoats. We blame, fault, uh, put somebody in harm's way, risk's way. So one of the very subtle um, images that underlies the whole action is the victim. Um, somebody is going to be executed. So it begins with a judge and a hangman going off. Nobody's thinking anything about anything, but if you're staying with a poem, it's hard to read it and not be aware something's happening. Um, in the section before the um, the um, the vest. No, knowns. Um, we had been reading about various groups in the city because the city is the focus point of all of this. Everybody's gathered around the city. Um, the last group that we that Auden describes is is known by the title group, and what we see is the group has this identity um, um, that protects itself, that allows people in the group to to go along with whatever is done. And it's a way of um, giving force to what the world did when Christ was crucified, because everybody said, crucify him, crucify him, everybody went along. Very few people saw the significance of that moment, I, in some ways not even his disciples fully. So um, we, we read the knowns, and then we got to, uh, or sorry, the, the section leading up to the knowns, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when um, the execution took place. And then we had we had this line. I'm going to mute you all, but um, just know if anybody needs to to come in to question, to object, or whatever you guys want to do, just come in, okay? If I can do this, um, I don't even know how to do it because it's not even up. Um, funny. Here. Um, um, 
So the knowns begins um, what we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, by shame and Sybil, all that comes to pass before we realized it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. Imagine, you know, everybody going to work, wanting to have a nice day, um, going about as if it's not Good Friday and everybody wanting to just act like it's just any other day, except on this day it's Good Friday. It's the day in which uh, we commemorate Christ's death. Um, um, this thing that was impossible, that is that we could kill a God. How could you kill a God? A God's immortal. We did it. So something that was impossible before was done. We killed a God. Um, all of our belief goes back to that moment. It's barely three mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry on the grass. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot, too bright, too still. You know, we can hear all of our complaints. It's too hot today, too cold. I want to, you know, we go on. The day is too hot, too bright, too still, too ever. The dead remains to nothing. What shall we do till nightfall? <laughs> I'm trusting everybody. Here's the irony. I mean, when, when you don't acknowledge a God and something's happened, what do you do? Except fill up the time. What do we do till nightfall? So the, the death has occurred. Um, I'm not going to go through the rest of it. What happens after that is amazing, like the rest of the poem. But we started, or so we ended knowns last week, and I want to start Vespers tonight. And because this section, like knowns, is long, I'm only going to read half of it, okay? Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it to see if I can get through most of it, and then just make a brief comment at the end, because that's what I'm trying to do. Two things to keep in mind. One is you know that one of the most important um, themes of our work together has been the city. The city came into existence after Cain was exiled. It's Cain's son, Enoch, that creates the first city. So the city is that, it's an image of um, what happens when man goes into exile from God and he tries to live a self-sufficient life without him. So the city's always had this paradoxical nature. It's our effort to live without him. It shows all of our greatness, but it shows all of our faults as well. That no matter what we do, however great it is, there's something lacking. So the city has been a focus through this whole poem, basically for those reasons. So the city is one. Notice that at the beginning, he's going to liken the hill behind the city to Adam and Eve's grave. So he's once again calling us calling our attention to our fall. We go back to them. The thing I just want to mention here is that after or late in the Vespers, we won't get to that part tonight, he talks about um, meeting another, that he and another meet, like two people in paths that are crossing, but he talks about them in terms of antitypes. So that one of the effects, we remember we saw that image earlier when, when Auden used that description, an image of an image of ourself. It's that we, we become, one of the effects of the fall is that we become dissociated from ourselves. He even describes himself as a double. Remember when he's in his room, as a poet, as an artist writing. Um, so he's a double, there's this sense of dissociation. And he carries that through in his treatment of the, these two antitypes. 
One of them, had, the speaker, has his roots in Eden. He has an, an Arcadian, a pastoral view of the world. That's the way he looks at things. He's well-mannered, he, he's educated, he's like a product of a world that, that wants to hold on to the innocence of Eden. And the antitype, his antitype, identifies himself with the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is a product of time and violence and wars. So one of them is very um, Edenic, innocent-like. The other is very utopian. And what, what they represent are the two possible extremes of our entire existence fallen. So that each of them is always a reminder of something he lacks. So the two of them together represent the two poles of every possible condition we meet, from Eden to New Jerusalem. Okay? So whenever they meet, what we see is something is called to mind in the other. Um, and I think most of us live with that in our marriages, in our families, in our, you know, that other people remind us of something we're lacking, something outside or other than us. Okay? So with that, with those just brief notes, let me, let me start. The Vespers. If the hill overlooking our city has always been known as Adam's grave, there's the city. Only at dusk can you see the recumbent giant, like the hills shaping Adam and Eve. His head turned to the west, his right arm resting forever on Eve's hunch. Can you learn from the way he looks up at the scandalous pair what a citizen really thinks of his citizenship? Just as now you can hear a drunkard's caterwaul, his rebel sorrows crying for a parental discipline in lustful eyes, perceive a disconsolate soul scanning with desperation all passing limbs for some vestige of her faceless angel when that long ago when wishing was a help mounted her once and vanished. For sun and moon supply their conforming masks, but in this hour of civil twilight, all must wear their own faces. Each one of us has an, uh, what, the, what the spiritual masters, traditionally in our church, has always called false selves. Every one of us has a false self, every single one of us. Part of our work here on earth is to get rid of it, to become images of Christ. Um, sun and moon supplied their conforming mask, but in the hour of civil twilight all must wear their own faces, and it is now that our two paths cross. Both simultaneously recognize his anti-type, that I'm an Arcadian, that he's utopian. He notes with contempt my Aquarian belly. I note with alarm his scorpion mouth. He would like to see me cleaning latrines. I would like to see him removed to some other planet. Neither speaks. What experience could we possibly share? Glancing at a lampshade in a wind store window, I observe it's too hideous for anybody in their senses to buy. He observes it's too expensive for a peasant to buy. I hope everybody's seen. For one, some things are beneath him. For other, it's that um, something's preventing people from having everything. One's Edenic, one's Utopian. He observes it's too expensive for a peasant to buy. Passing a slum child with rickets, I look the other way. He looks the other way if he passes a chubby one. I hope our senators will behave like saints, provided they don't reform me. 
he hopes they will behave like baritone um, cativi, I think, naughty baritones. And when lights burn late in the Citadel, I, who have never seen the inside of a police station, am shocked and think, were the city as free as they say after sundown, all her bureaus would be huge black stones. He, who has been beaten up several times, is not shocked at all, but thinks, one fine night our boys will be working up there. You can see then why between my Eden and his New Jerusalem, no treaty is negotiable. In my Eden, a person who dislikes Bellini, it's just a high-class drink, and his New Jerusalem, no, as, as, in my Eden, a person who dislikes Bellini has the good manners not to get born. <laughs> in his New Jerusalem, a person who dislikes work will be very sorry he was born. In my Eden, we have a few beam engines, saddle tank, locomotives, overshot water wheels, and other beautiful pieces of obsolete machinery to play with. In his New Jerusalem, even chefs will be cucumber cool machine minders. In Mark. My Eden, our only source of political news, is gossip. In his New Jerusalem, there will be a special daily in simplified spelling for nonverbal types. In my Eden, each observes his compulsive rituals and superstitions, taboos, but we have no morals. In his New Jerusalem, the temples will be empty, but all will practice the rational virtues. I'm just going to go down. I'm going to leave it here and finish tomorrow, but I want to read one line just to try to help focus this. Um, go down to the very end. Um, um, <sighs> was it simply a fortuitous intersection of life paths, loyal to different fibs, or also a rendezvous between two between accomplices who in spite of themselves, cannot resist meeting to remind the other, do both at bottom desire truth, of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing us both, for a fraction of a second, to remember our victim, but for him I could forget the blood, but for me he could forget the innocence, on whose immolation, call him Abel, Remus, whom you will, it is one sin offering. Arcadia's, Utopia's, our dear old bag of a democracy are alike founded. Let me stop. I, I just ask everybody to reread it with some of these things a little bit clearer in mind and see what you make of it. One last thing before we leave it. The beauty of what he's doing in that anti-type, um, one of the effects of the fall is that we lost Eden. We believe that if, if we work with God, who offered us redemption with Christ, that we will move from Eden to a new Jerusalem. So out of a garden to the city, God's city. So all of us in human existence live between those two poles. It's the central tension for every one of us in our lives. Um, a Nobel prose, uh, poet, sorry, poet um, some years ago wrote that, um, how do you put it, that the, that the new Jerusalem is the inspiration for every work of art. That, mom looks, that man looks back to this past that we've lost and forward to something we all long for. So one of the things that Auden is showing us here in this section is that here's the city, everybody preoccupied, 
the death has taken place, and now he presents these two people, these antitypes, meeting. But in the two antitypes, I think what he's showing us is what they experience is what all of us experience, always. That we exist between these two extremes, between something innocent, lost, and something longed for that will have to be suffered for. And whatever we do with each other, we're always engaging that tension. Is that clear? I, I think that's, I don't want to go into the poem that much, but I think if you just keep those things in mind and reread it, the, that first half of Vespers will, will get a little bit clearer. Just remember that the central image, what the ties all of these prayers at the various hours of the day together is this sense of a victim, the scapegoating and, and how it plays out in our lives. Um, the way in which we look back to something we lost and the way that we look forward to something we all desire. Let me stop. Um, any questions or comments on on what he's doing with the first half, first half of Vespers? Leslie, go ahead. You didn't even wait to be called on. <laughs> what page were you on on the last reading? Oh, sorry. Do you have the... Do you have the the text before? I have Compline, and I followed you all the way up until when you started reading the end. The page so is... I have page 11, 12, 13. Yeah, the, the Vespers, the Vespers, I think we all have the same copy, I'm not sure. The Vespers for me starts on page 9 and goes uh, over to 11 where Compline starts. 11. It was just the So in the middle of Vespers on page... Um, I, I went from page 9 to the middle of page 10. Okay, got it. Thank you. Okay. Any comments or responses or thoughts before we turn to Boethius? Okay. Well, I know we're not supposed to get political here, but there... <laughs> I mean, you can't not see the, the old Eden making America great again. And the new, you know, socialist, you know, making everybody equal and no God. one's rich. Yeah, wow. And I love how they both look at each other like it, it helps them to remember, oh, wait, it's my fault. I mean, they, the, I don't know how they described it. Um, shoot. Uh, to remind the other of half of their secret, which he would like most to forget, right. forcing it to remember our victim we all have to take responsibility for this it's not your vision or my vision we, we're all in this together because we've all we were all part of the problem right no I <laughs> bless that soul of yours um, all I can do Leslie is say we pray for you if you're her friend when is <laughs> God, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to bring it up, but, but, um, but I think you're right on. One of the difficulties that we're interestingly, uh, this is I need to be very careful right now. One of the difficulties that we face is that we're in a temporal world. This is a poet, you know, talking about a universal condition. We we got to vote. I mean, we we have to, you know, make a decision here. 
What Auden is showing us is an underlying condition. I, I thought you put it really well, and I, I agree with you that it's funny that, but yeah, it's there. Um, and you know, you know that he's got, um, he's aware of those differences in England when he's writing. You could have called it a conservative or a liberal party or, you know, whatever. Um, when he's talking about his democracy, because he knows he's in a city, and as much as he's a poet trying to describe something most people don't want to see, he would have to identify at parties when elections came up, or he's going to take some responsibility or not. But yeah. Um, any other comments before we turn to Boethius? Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. God. God. Leslie, did you have a... Go ahead. Talks about the New Jerusalem and the temples being empty um, and the virtues being practiced. I don't really get that theme. I mean, I thought in the New Jerusalem, everybody would be there with all that good stuff. <laughs> Except this is a temporal condition. Let me wait on... Can we wait on that until we, next week? to explicate until we get through with the whole thing to do the Vespers sure. and then okay. try to put the whole thing together and take some of these details and um, okay. see if we can make sense of them. I think it's a really so good... the New Jerusalem, it would be just a, a mind thing in the secular world? Well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't think that's the way Auden looks at it. I don't think that's the way he's asking. Oh my God. Um, I think what he's... I mean... God, I can't get inside of Auden's head. I'm trying to read his poem here, but I think it would be closer. If, if you look at somebody like um, Carl Jung, the psychologist, who to me is much sounder than Freud on these things, he would talk about a collective unconscious, that there's something in all of us. When the poet that I'm talking about, Musilov was his name, I think, when he said that um, all poetry is inspired by a longing for the New Jerusalem. He was speaking about a condition of the soul in every one of us. So it's not just a description of the state. I think what Odd's doing is showing that most of us live in, what, as in the way that he's done it, most of us live in this tension so that people can swing off to one side. I mean, I thought Melody's way of putting it, you know, that these people who identify with Eden on the one hand and those with those who identify, and if you think about it, whoever it is who identifies with Eden will carry something of the New Jerusalem in them, but they will lean off that way. And those who identify with the New Jerusalem or the utopian, the socialist, you know, however you want to carry something of Eden. That tension exists in every one of us, but people tend to slip off to opposites. So we've got these two poles that define what I'm calling this tension in every in every human person. Um, people can struggle to make it real. I mean, somebody can, lots of people want to bring a, a socialist utopia into America and make it real, believing they'll achieve that good. You know, I, I don't want to go there. Um, so, it, both of those things exist in everyone. We came from Eden, we long for this world. That's that's at the center of every one of our souls. We can't escape it. It's who we are. 
We were created by God. We had this identic existence. We lost it from a wrong. We're struggling to recover our place with God. It's exactly what Boethius is dealing with tonight. It just amazes me that we're the timing on this is this. Let me go to, uh, let's get to Boethius. We've got a, a difficult a difficult chapter. Um, okay. Let me say in advance, I, I think um, chapter 4 is in some ways maybe the most difficult. Um, it's a lead up to 5, which will take us if you think of the work in terms of the metaphor of a mountain, that we're climbing a mountain, that five will take us to the top, at which point we will see everything more clearly. But I think there's no way to get to the top without four, and, and four is, I don't think, an easy chapter. He, he, there's a number of steps that he has to take to get us ready for five. So it's going to take some doing to get there. Let me see if... By the way, did all of you get did all of you get my note to you the the outline? You all guys, you guys are all getting the outlines. Um, sometimes I won't get them there, but but I'm hoping every week to try to get something to you to look at. But very briefly, if I can, try to pick us up quickly. The stories the the backstory for consolation is the Job story. Why why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We know in the Job story. Um, that Satan is tempting Job. Satan comes to God at the very beginning. That's clear. The, the Job writer is, is not holding back here. It's Satan who comes. And God allows him, gives permission for evil because he believes that um, any tempting that the day devil does of Job will only show Job's better, that, that God's right. So... Um, one of the truths we take away from the Job story is that God believes in our goodness more than evil. That very often temptations will strengthen us. They will help us to become better. Um, it's one of the outcomes. Job has to question God. He begins to doubt him and says other things. His friends accuse him of being ungodly and God actually takes Job's side at the end and says his friends are dumb. The backstory is the Job story. Um, the the, the basic question of the, wor the work is why does God allow evil people to prosper and good people to suffer? If God allows evil in the world doesn't that imply that God himself has something evil in him? So the work implicitly is, is questioning justice, whether there's any real justice in the world. So the, the questions are fundamental. If, if How could evil exist in the world unless God were evil. Um, if these injustices take place, it doesn't speak very well for God. Okay? That's the basic concern. You know that when Lady Philosophy arrives, um, Job is angry and feeling sorry for himself because Boethius. he... Or sorry, both yes. You and, you and Stephanie... <laughs> God, the the work that the two of you have to do, God, um, let's see, who was I talking about? Boethius was in jail waiting his execution, and Lady Flossie comes to him. He's, from one perspective, he's rightly feeling sorry for himself. He's been unjustly accused. He's going to die. Lady Flossie tells him to get over himself, and he gives his reasons why he makes clear that certain people in the Senate 
falsely accused him, and the king sentenced him to death. Um, ladies, lady philosophy will have no sympathy for him at all. She says, the problem with you is not your circumstances, it's you. So in one sense, she's making clear for all of us, it's a pretty tough position to take because I'm assuming that most of us have times during the day when we'll feel sorry for ourselves or we'll get angry at somebody or feel that we've been unjustly treated or you know whatever and feel justified in doing whatever we're doing. She's taking that ground away. She's saying the problem with you is yourself that you forgot your beginnings and you've forgotten your end. You don't know who you are. She, she diagnoses him as a sort of doctor as suffering from a case of amnesia. And you know that one of the principal motifs that enters the story at that point is this notion of anamnesis. The true knowledge is a recover of something, a recovery of something we've lost. So what she's going to help him do is recover something that he once knew that he needs to regain. Okay, all of this is just review. Remember, I, I, I made this link a number of times now, that at the center of the Mass, the center of our faith, is this idea of anamnesis. When we, when we commemorate the Mass, when we receive the Eucharist, do this in remembrance of me, um, we believe that we, this is not just something going on in our head, as it would be for a Protestant. It's not just commemorating that we actually enter into a sacrifice with Christ. We take on his nature, something divine, a divine help is given to us, and we take that back out into the world to help fulfill the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. We're making that kingdom present. When we carry Christ in us in the Eucharist, we're part of us, his world, he's part of ours. And we've talked about that term, um, apophatic, remember, to know something by what's not there. I, I kept talking about that. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? You know, we've got Christ. We believe we're in his kingdom, yet we're on the way to the parking lot. Um, so where are we? Um, we're between two worlds in that moment. Lady philosophy wants to help Boethius recover his sense of beginnings and ends. Um, I'm going to see if I've forgotten anything up to that point. Um, I don't think she, so at, or, or in, early in that stage she makes clear that um, she asks him if, you, if he remembered his beginnings and says yes he did, it was God. And when he asks, or she asks if he knew his remember his ends, he had trouble doing it. And then he finally came to it, that God is the beginning of all things, he's the end. He's the creator, he made everything, and everything for a place. And there are a number of those poems in which God is being described as the creator of everything, and everything falling into its place. What makes man so strange is that he's different from all of God's other creations, because um, God gave man free will, he made us in his image, and because we have freedom, very often we want more than we should have. We make ourselves miserable, we make ourselves unhappy, because we, we in, the word for him is greed. We want too much, we desire too much, we don't control our desires. 
Um, so, um, um, Maria, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Hi. Hi. Good to good to see you. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> Got some serious questions for you, so you stay stay where you are. Um. So in book three, what she, what she, um, what she wants to do is answer Boethius's plight, and I think the simple way to say it is this: when the story begins, Boethius is misery, miserable. Uh, he's lost everything. He's going to lose his life. And she says, the problem isn't your circumstances, it's you. Your whole way of looking at things is wrong. And she starts out by saying, um, based on what's going on, that all men desire happiness. Boethius is only grieving, right, because he's lost those things that have made him happy. He's lost his status, his job, his career, his place. He's lost his family. It's exactly like Job. He's lost everything. He's miserable. So the assumption is if he had all those things, he would be happy, right? She makes it clear that all men desire happiness. That's from Plato, that's from Aristotle, that's our natural condition. We, when we're in misery, we're not where we would want to be. We'd rather be where we're happy. So the problem she faces is how to answer him at a time when he's made the source of his happiness rest on all those things he could lose. Now that's essential. It's a starting point, yeah? And what she does in book three, from, from chapters one through nine, is she takes on all those things um, that show a false understanding of happiness. Power, wealth, status, um, family. What am I missing? Um, all of those things that would make man happy she takes each one of them and shows that something's wrong with them and because he's based his happiness on them, he'll be miserable. Now let me just be clear before we go. Why are those things not sufficient for man's happiness? What's her argument? Can anybody recall? This is according to Boethius. I'm asking not for your own opinions right now. I'm asking for everybody to stay in the text. What's her argument? Do you remember? For instance, with money, the more money that you have, the more money that you think you need to continue to stay happy. Um, the same with power. Um, when you have power, if anybody can take something away from you, then you didn't have it in, in the first place, so it can't lead to happiness. Yeah, so, just yeah. stop there right now. Okay. Um, what, is, what does it leave you with um, if... If you're facing the prospect that somebody could take it away from you, money or power. Well, you're, you live petrified in that fear. something would happen. Right. So longing for those things, in one sense, doesn't bring happiness because it leaves you with a fear. What you have to do is get anxious about all the many things you have to do to protect it. So the wealthier you get, the more anxious you're going to have to get to protect your wealth. Um, so that when you lose it, you're going to be miserable. That's true for all of those, all of those goods that people pursue. Here, let me name them. I, I think this is in book three in the middle. Riches, popular acclaim, 
political power, fame, bodily pleasure, true nobility, the family you come from. Every one of those things is a natural good. Every one of them is good. The trouble is if you make them the, um, the reason for your happiness, um, you'll lose them. At that point, she goes on, she turns away from the false sources of happiness to true happiness. Um, what constitutes a true happiness for her? If all of those things lead people to a false sense of happiness, what would, what would make for real happiness? If you follow her line of argument out. Stephanie. If you just I think, think of that and try to remember better, but it's being something that's something that's Sorry, there was a deco on all of that. Can you say that again? Say it slowly. Um, if I remember correctly, something that's freely given, but not something that has to be earned. Is kind of how it's yeah. What else? What's the problem with every one of those things I just mentioned? Fame, wealth, power, family nobility. If, if the problem with every one of those is that it can be lost, what would be one of the conditions of true happiness? I mean, just logically. That it can't be lost. Yeah. So the only true happiness can be found in God because he's eternal. Right. He's never going to leave us. Um, so. Right. So for anybody to be truly happy, he'd have to put his desires, his ultimate desires, on something that was self-sufficient, intrinsically good in itself. Every one of those things is good, but it's not self-sufficient. It can't last on its own. Every one of them can be lost, right? So for happiness to be true, for it to be well-founded, it has to rest on something that's in itself intrinsically good and lasting, eternal. There's only one thing that can do that. That's God. Yeah. Um, at the end of book three, just for a moment, remember, I, I'm, I'm just trying to do a quick review here to get us into four. Book three ends with that poem describing Orpheus going into the underworld to seek um, Eurydice. Why does, I think we talked about this, so I think you know, but just to review, why does Boethius end chapter 3 with that image? What's its importance before we go on? Do you guys remember? So that Boethius won't turn around from remembering the wisdom that philosophy is giving him to turn around and, and relapse. And yeah. Back yeah. Remember, Orpheus, Orpheus was allowed. He, he, by the way, if you don't know, Orpheus is the sort of prototype image of the poet, the artist. He, he his songs tame trees, rocks, streams, humans. He's an he's an image of um, the creative power of a poet and the poet's ability to help order our emotions, to calm, to bring an order to our soul. 
he's allowed to go into the underworld to get Eurydice, his beloved, on the condition that he not turn back. So the condition is that that he keep his attention where it should be. And this is as a poet, an artist. Um, so it's really partly about an artist's ability to control his emotions, his or her emotions, you know, to 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 keep his mind on his job, what's there. He has Eurydice with him and he's taking her out and she has, she's behind him and at one point he becomes afraid. He's afraid she's not going to come out. He turns around and in the act of turning around, she's gone. So part of the meaning of the myth is, once again, the danger of our fears. It's our fears of losing something we want that distracts us, that takes our soul's attention away from where it should be. Our fears get a hold of us. So indirectly, the moral points up pretty clearly. At this point, it's really important that Boethius not look back, that he keep his mind ahead where she's leading him, because if he does look back, he'll lose it. We talked about the, um, you know, the example from Scripture of Lot's wife looking back. She did not want to give up that life. When she, and all of it, the sexual disorders, the disorder of the city, God was going to um, destroy it because she didn't want to give up that past. She wouldn't let go of it. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful image. It's an Orphic, it's an Orphic image again because sometimes our, our, um, um, what, our desires are not wanting to give up the past to not let it go keeps us from moving forward. Because in some sense, moving forward means entering a mystery, giving up those things we know. So it's our fear of losing that or afraid of giving it up, of not wanting to give it up, that once again distracts us. So this is a crucial moment, book three, the end of book three, um, with that poem. And so right now at the beginning of book four, Lady Philosophy is going to take Boethius to another level. So in book three, she's taken on all those, um, all those things that men pursue falsely, um, and um, has identified the source of true happiness, that it has to be self-sufficient, complete in itself, in order for man to be finally happy. And let me just one one final second: Is everybody clear on what she says about the nature of God before we go on? That if God means anything, it means complete goodness. It's self-sufficient in itself. There cannot be anything outside of him. Because if there's anything outside of him, it means he's not complete. So he's complete goodness in itself. There was nothing before him. If there were, he would have been created. He'd be dependent on something else. There'd be something greater than he is. So God is complete goodness, sufficient in himself, intrinsically good. That's what all men long for, for people to put their wills, their desires on him allows them to participate in his goodness, to have a, have a source for overcoming the fears, the terrors, the desires that can pull them back. Is everybody clear on that before we, what God is and why it's important? He's complete in itself. It's crucial to see that. If he if he wasn't, he'd be lacking something. So God is being complete being, nothing before, nothing after. Um, 
He's self-sufficient. If man's going to be happy, the only source of his happiness can be that God, finally. The beginning and end of all things. So I think that's, that's, the, um, that's the point at which we are right now. Any questions before we go on? Maria, you have anything on this? <laughs> no. <laughs> I missed that smile of yours. Where are you? Where'd you go? Um, okay, let's let's take a look at book four. Um, turn to page eighty eighty five. This is book four, the first chapter. Um, there's seven sections in book four. Um, this is book four, section one. Okay. Okay. So in 85, um, it begins. Philosophy delivered this sweet and gentle song with dignity of continence and gravity of expression, but I had still not forgotten the grief within me, and I cut her short just as she was preparing to say something. Because right now, this is so wonderful. God, it's so human. Um, let, me, let me put this in realistic terms. When any of, us, any of us is in misery, I mean real misery, when we're suffering a real loss, Boethius is facing his death. And somebody comes along and says, mm, everything's in God's hands. Don't worry, everything will be all right. What's your first response? Will your heart be settled then? Or I think for most of us, will the suffering go away? What he's doing is very, to me, it's, it's, it's the realism of Boethius because um, Boethius is still suffering. <laughs> Lady Philosophy can say whatever she wants. He's still going to die. <laughs> So he's not ready yet to give up his anger or self-pity. He's still got questions. Um, she responds to him, and then he says, "But the greatest cause of my the greatest cause of my sadness is really this: the fact that in spite of good helmsmen to guide the world, God is there. Evil can still exist and even pass unpunished. The fact alone that you must surely think it considerable wonder, but there's something even more bewildering." When wickedness rules and flourishes, not only does virtue go unrewarded, it's even trodden underfoot by the wicked and punished in the place of crime. He's only asking more forcefully what he's been asking all along. Um, wicked men go unpunished. Um, virtuous men are still tortured. That this can happen in the realm of an omniscient and omnipotent God who wills only good is beyond perplexity and complaint. If God is omniscient, he can see everything. And if he's omnipotent, he has power over everything. Why does he allow this? Yeah? Um, at the bottom of the page, if your recent conclusion may remain intact, you can learn from the creator himself, since it's his realm we're speaking of, that the good are always strong and the wicked always humbled, and weak. From him too you can learn that sin never goes unpunished or virtue unrewarded and that what happens to the good is always happy and that what happens to the bad always misfortune. 
There are many other considerations of this kind which, once your complaints have been stilled, will give you firm and solid strength. You have seen the shape of true happiness when I showed it to you just now, and you saw where it's to be found. When we have run through all that I think we should clear out of the way beforehand, I will show you the path that will bring you back home. I will give your mind wings on which to lift itself. All disquiet shall be driven away, and you, you should be able to return safely to your homeland. I will be your guide, your path, and your conveyance. So she's promising him now that um, that she'll lead him home for at this point just to be patient. On page um, 87, um, she says first then at the top of the page that the good are always strong and that the wicked always bereft of all powers. These are facts you'll be able to see the one being proved by the other. For since good and evil are opposite, the weakness of evil is shown by establishing the strength of good and vice versa. So to strengthen your confidence in my teaching, I will proceed along both ways and prove my assertions doubly. Can anybody very briefly summarize her argument? Um, she's saying good and evil are opposites. The weakness of evil is shown by establishing the strength of good. If good and evil are are um, opposites, what follows? How can she draw the conclusion she is? Can anybody recall her argument? She's saying that the good will always be strong, that goodness will always have a strength, and evil will always have a weakness. Now she's saying that in the face of the question, which is why do, why do evil men succeed? Why do they prosper? and good men suffer. Right now she's saying um, good people are strong and evil people are weak. How does she arrive at that, that, that conclusion, that statement? Do you remember? Do you remember, Doc? I can't go step by step without looking at it. I I think of it in terms of like the martyrs, you know, even though martyrs are killed, their strength um, outlasts them, outlives them, and eventually brings down, like um, Maximilian Kolbe, you know, standing up against uh, Hitler and, and giving his life, um, the wicked fell and um, goodness not only, I mean, it didn't survive this life, but it went on to inspire a lot of other people. Yeah. Remember, she's, uh, go ahead, Doc. Go ahead. The, that, um, Can you all hear Suzanne? Go, that go. good men, she's going back a little bit to the things that she said were, um, were good things in earlier chapters, so... Um, being powerful is good, and that good men can accomplish the good that they set out to do, whereas evil men are distorted in some way, so that even though they actually do desire the good, they can't accomplish it. They get sidetracked into 
wealth or um, something else that keeps them from the good. And since the good can accomplish what they want, what they desire, um, which is the good, God, um, and evil men can't, then that means good men are powerful and evil men are weak. Let me go back to, to just um, reinforce what Susanna is saying. On 81, she was talking about the nature of God and asked the question, can God do evil? If God is all good, can God commit an evil? No, he can't go against his nature. Okay, If he's complete goodness, he can't take away from himself. Um, so she asks in the middle of page 81, but there's nothing that an omnipotent power could not do? No. That, that is, God can do everything. Then can God do evil? No. So that evil is nothing, since that is what he cannot do, who can do anything. God can't go against his nature. He's all good. Evil, then, is a privation. It's not a thing. This is so crucial to get. There are philosophies. Zoroastrianism is one of them. There are philosophies, and it's interesting to see how many of these heretical things come out of the East. There are philosophies that believe that good and evil are absolutely intertwined, eternally. If they are, if good and evil are intertwined, there's no reason not to choose evil. It's not going to matter anyway, I mean, if it's eternal. Some of those philosophies are Manichaean. The good evil is, is broken down in this way, that good is associated with spirit, evil is associated with body, and they're in this eternal conflict. Christ took that away. I mean, actually, Aristotle and Plato took it away if you go back and look at those arguments. God has got to be all good. It's his nature. Um, but there's nothing outside of God. Evil isn't a thing, or, um, or it would be at odds with God, and there would be something other than he is, but he's complete in itself. So to be consistent in any kind of thinking about this, it's crucial to see that evil is a privation, it's nothing. So that's why she says on that page, um, where was I? 81. 81, page 81. Um, can God do evil? No. So that evil is nothing, since that is what he cannot do. God can't be something other than he is. So if somebody, if somebody set out to do good. I mean, remember, the question now is, um, what was the question? How, why can, if, if, if um, good men are good, how did I put it? Why will they always be stronger than an evil man? Because their claim right now is that um, a, a good man has a power to do something that an evil man can't. And, and my question to you a few minutes ago was, on what basis does she make that claim? What's the, what's the reason behind it? She's saying that good men will have a strength to do something bad men won't. Why? Virtue. Sorry? Um, because of virtue. Explain it, Tina, can you? Um, well, on page 89 at the bottom. Yep. Um, I was reading that virtue 
that the that uh, good man and bad alike seek seek good, but they do it in different ways. Right. Uh, read it. Good. Can you go ahead and read it? Uh, well, the purpose, the supreme good, is the goal of good men and bad alike, and the good seek it by means of natural activity, the exercise of their virtues, while the bad strive to acquire the very same thing by means of their various desires, which isn't a natural method of obtaining the good. Flesh that out, can you? So, um, well, because if they're, to them, the, uh, all the things that we were saying, the power, the money, um, those are desires that they'll lose in the long run. Um, so they're actually undermining the efforts to be virtuous or good. I mean, let's say, let's say you wanted to attain a good and you had to kill somebody to do it. Mm. Is the fact that you would do that, would that, would that action push you towards goodness or draw you away from it? Why, one or the other? What's her argument here? Well, it would draw you away from it because that's not a natural good uh, to take someone's life. So you're choosing a natural good of life over greed or whatever it is that you're trying to get. You're or choosing an unnatural good, yeah. The, the argument she's making is that it, it, in each of the effort, if both men are trying to get to good and one man chooses unnatural ways or bad ways to get to them, what he's doing is undercutting himself because he's actually committing evils. So he's weakening himself. He's not strengthening his virtue. He's actually undoing it. You know, the end result of this is really interesting. If you follow the logic out, what she's saying is, no, gut, evil is a privation. But by the way, the Catholic Church holds that. Evil is not a positive thing. If it were, there'd be no reason not to choose it. Evil is a privation. It's an absence of goodness. That um, the, the ultimate conclusion to her whole line of thinking is that evil will destroy itself finally. There's no way. It cannot by its very nature. No matter how much a person tries to do something, all the power, all the wealth in the world, if his motives are evil... He's finally going to destroy himself. Even if he doesn't see it, there's no way he cannot. Every action is finally taking himself away from God and away from his own goodness. She says on, go back to Tina's page at the bottom of 90, For I ask you, what's the cause of this fl flight from virtue to vice? If you say it's because they do not know what is good, I shall ask, what greater weakness is there than the blindness of ignorance? And if you say that they know what they ought to seek for, but pleasure sends them chasing off the wrong way, this way too they are weak through a lack of self-control because they cannot resist fight. So two things enter into this that, that cripple the, the man who's not virtuous. One is ignorance, which is going to play a big part in this. If we don't learn to understand the difference, we have a harder time practicing virtue because we don't see it. We don't know it in our minds. So one is ignorance, we're blind, um, we think we see something when we don't, and the other is the weakness of our own wills. We get 
sidetracked by whatever pleasures we seek, whatever distracts us from doing good. The middle of page 91, she says, to the objection that evil men do have power, I would say that this power of theirs comes from weakness rather than strength, for they would not have the power to do the evil they can if they could have remained, retained the power of doing good. They can only do that power by ceasing to be good. So as a matter of fact, they're actually weaker. They don't have the strength to do what they want. Um, Ninety-three and four. Interesting, she says. Remember that we we only get stronger by desiring the good and struggling to pursue it. When we give in to temptations and we turn away from it, even if we're turning towards something we want, it's not a good. We end up hurting ourselves. We undermine ourselves. Top of page 93 in the beginning of section 3. The proper way of looking at it is to regard the goal of every action as its reward, just as the price for running a stadium is the wreath of laurels. Now we've shown that happiness is the very same good which motivates all activity, so that goodness itself is set as a kind of common reward of human activity. Virtue is its own reward. The more we practice it, um, the better we get. Down below she says, goodness is happiness and therefore it's obvious that all good men attain happiness in virtue of, of their being good. But we agree that those who attain happiness are divine. The reward of the good then is a reward that can never be decreased, that no one's power can diminish and no one's wickedness darker is to become God's. This being so, no wise man can be in any doubt about the inevitability of the punishments of the wicked. Like good and evil, reward and punishment are opposites. The reward we see due to the good must be balanced by a corresponding punishment of the wicked. Now, I want to stop here just for a second. Um, this is sort of amazing because what she's saying is it's only by longing for the good that we become good. When we do, we participate in that goodness. We take something divine into us. You know, um, he's not even thinking of the Eucharist right now. Right now he's just thinking of somebody who's devoting his life to goodness, arguing that when somebody does that, he actually participates in that divine goodness himself. There's something in man that breathes above time. We participate in, even if we remain human. I mean, Christ is the perfect, Christ walked around, he was a human just like us. He had a body just like us. He ate like us, went to the bathroom like us. He was a human. Who, who would have looked at him and thought a God? He's a human, just like us. And yet everything he did, walk on water, heal, you know, all of it, showed that there was something in humans, particularly with his help, that would help humans complete their identity, that there's something in us capable of participating in the divine. Um, here she's saying this being so no wise man can be in any doubt about the inevitability of the punishment of the wicked like good and evil reward and punishment are opposites 
The reward we see due to the good must be balanced by a corresponding punishment of the wicked. Um, on page 94, again, think of the punishment that dogs the wicked from the opposite point of view. short while ago you learned that all that exists is in a state of unity and that goodness itself is unity, it's one, from which it follows that we must see everything that exists as good, everything, a flower, a tree. We're not Calvinists, we don't believe in depravity. Everything that is, is good. God made it. This means that anything which turns away from goodness ceases to exist, and thus that the wicked cease to be what they once were, that they used to be human is shown by human appearance of their body, which still remains. So it is by falling into wickedness that they also lose their human nature. The more, the more evil they do, the less human they become. Even if we can't see it, it will play out. So wickedness will bring on its own punishments. They will be punished. Um, hold on. Now let me go to this because it's a, it's a, it just seems to me it's a tricky part of his reasoning here. The more that somebody does evil, the more he undoes himself. The more he turns away from God, the more he weakens his own will. The harder it is for him to restrain himself, the, the, the graver the danger that he will um, lose his personhood. Um, if evil's a deprivation, he'll be less and less capable of doing the good he set out to do. Here she's saying, she's going and taking another step, which is a really interesting step. She's saying that the wickedness will bring on their own misery, the good will bring on their own goodness, even if it means somebody will die. Socrates died, Christ died, Thomas More died. You know, we can find other examples of men who went to their death um, and who affirmed their goodness in the way that they died. They were living for some good, even if evil men took it away from them. It didn't deprive them of their good. In fact, I'll go far. If anything, what it did was make their goodness greater um, because they had to face a greater temptation in their death. They had to face giving up more. So the vir their virtue even grew in the way they went to their death, by the way they faced difficulties. But she says at this point, she's going to make a turn, and, sh and she says to him, this may seem strange to you, but stay with me for a minute. He says, what is it? She says, this is bottom 97, that the wicked are happier if they suffer punishment than if they're unrestrained by any just retribution. And I do not have in mind what you may think, namely that wickedness is corrected by punishment and returned to the right path. Um, no, I think there's another way in which the wicked are more unhappy if they go unpunished, apart from any consideration of their corrective effort of punishment. So she's not saying, so if you get put in jail and you change and you got back to the right path, then you'll be happy. She's not saying that. She says that, as a matter of fact, when the wicked do something wrong, they are glad when they're punished. Why does she say that? The wicked are happier if they are punished than if they're unrestrained. Page 98 at the bottom. It's the logical outcome of our previous conclusion, but I ask you, don't you leave any punishment of the soul 
until after the death of the body. He, she goes on to complete this, but before we get there, right now she's making the argument that the wicked will be happier if they're punished than if they're not. Why? Why would that follow? What's her reasoning? I was gonna, I was gonna say maybe it, would be, it gives him a chance to repent. No, because no, no, they're not. What he's really saying is, I mean, they're not looking forward to something. That I mean, a hope that you know, he's saying, or she, sorry, she's saying, or Boethius is saying through her that um, the wicked are actually happier when they suffer punishment. Um, than they are by any just retribution. Why? If they're unrestrained by any... So they... they here, wait. So, so, she's saying, the wicked are happier if they, if they suffer punishment than if they are unrestrained by any just retribution. So long as they can get away with their happiness, I mean their misery, they'll keep doing it. Um, but her argument right now is that they'll be happier if they're punished than if they're left alone to continue to do what they're doing. Doug, go ahead. I think she's saying, or at least part of what she's saying, is that um, when the wicked are punished justly, that that is, a, that that is good. And so just the fact of their punishment brings them closer to good than they would have been if they'd been unpunished. And left to go and continue doing bad. So just, just punishing them, which draws them into a closer proximity of good, is better than going on unpunished. Did you all hear? Could you all hear Suzanne? Does anybody want to add anything to that? Or let me put it differently. Let's say you've done something wrong and you don't get caught. She's saying it would be better to be punished than to continue going on doing what you're doing. Why? Mm-hmm. Who said um? Hmm? Is it some kind of like uh, showing mercy? Maybe to. Uh, it's justice, but then you're getting mercy by not, I'm not sure. I was just thinking, um, uh, like the other lady was saying, that it might turn you around, keep you from going down further. Right. So it's like right. a mercy. I don't know that it's mercy. I'm not sure that right now mercy is her concern. Stephanie, did you have something? You look like you're... A little further down. Go ahead. Stephanie, something's going on with your mic. We're getting an echo. I don't know what that is. It's hard to hear that. I don't know what's going on with your mic. I'm sorry. It isn't. 
Go ahead, Karen, did you have something? Go ahead. Well, it just sounds like it's all a very good argument for confession. Um, you're relieved of some of the guilt of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're seeking good, um, take some of it away. Yeah. Maria, did you have something? I, I yeah, I wanted to... I, I, I understand it theoretically that um, it is an encounter with truth and goodness, so in that sense, it's better than keeping on, on the bad path. But how does that work in actuality? Because I don't see people being punished, being happier when this happens. So, like, theoretically, uh, yes, I understand it, but I haven't seen that lived out. Okay, let me, let me just clarify this and then take on Maria's question. I, I want to be careful of time right now, but I think it's a good question. I think partly what she's saying is this. So let, but we've got to square it with Maria's question because it's a good question. Part of what's going on is this. If you've committed an evil, um, he, she's saying you're actually happier to be punished um, than if you're left to go on doing what you're doing because if you're left, you don't have the strength. That is to go back to her argument. You're just weak. What you're doing is giving into a weakness and continuing to do the things you can't stop doing. Let's say it's an addiction. Let's say it's a serious one. Let's say you're a you're a um, serial molester, you know, or whatever. That so, it, so if the soul, by the way, I'm I'm, I'm getting, trying to get to Maria, but if the soul was made good, we're not Calvinists. I think most of the theories going on today, all of them, start with an idea that we're we're inherently evil, we're inherently homosexual. We're inherently evil. We've got inherent... All of those presume an evil at our birth. The Catholic Church maintains know that we're born essentially good. We're wounded, but, we, but we're... I mean, we're good, but we have a wound. Um, if you commit an evil and you're left to continue and you can't overcome your weakness, then some part of you is glad for the restraint. That's what her argument is. Maria, let me offer this thought, and then any, anybody can jump in. If you're living in a society in which everybody thinks you've got to be able to do whatever you want to do, you know, then everybody's going to be unhappy when you get punished. What she's saying is in the soul, in the depths of your soul, something in you will be glad because in whatever way you're made in God's image, you are meant to do good, so to be punished is a good because it stops you. But how, so, how much of us get angry at that because there's a part of us thinks that I should be able to continue to do what I want. If you live in a society in which people encourage you to think, keep doing whatever you want to do, and somebody stops you from doing it, or in our fallen condition, we're proud, and we don't want to admit we've committed a sin, then we're going to get really angry when somebody punishes us. So I think, at least my answer to your question, is that it, what you're describing is one of the effects of the fall, that in our pride, we don't want to admit what we do. We get unhappy when somebody catches us or holds us responsible. What Boethius is saying is that the, the very nature of the soul is such that we long for this goodness. At some depth, we're glad. You know, you hear this about, say, so part of the problem is getting rid of that false self, I think, that's behind so much of what we as humans do. 
But haven't all of you heard this thing where very often people who commit crimes reach a point where they suddenly start doing things to give themselves away? It's like they want to get caught because they can't stop themselves. You know, we, we, we want to hide our sins. We want to get away. But all of us are ashamed. We want to, I mean, it goes to whoever, Karen, you know, it goes to the essential importance of confession that we're encouraged to constantly admit our sins, to help correct us, to give us the strength to put them away. Um, On one, sorry, go ahead. Not fun. I'm sorry, who say again? Waiting for a shoe to fall is not fun. Sometimes <laughs> it's better when the worst has happened, I've hit rock bottom, yes. and then I can get better. Right, right. I don't know. By the way, I, I meant to say this at the beginning of the hour, but I, I forgot. On the Francis website, or I mean our Francis meeting, we've been dealing with theories of justice and mercy. And we've been reading a C.S. Lewis essay in which Lewis is making the argument that we've replaced justice and mercy with the notion of cure and sickness. And he's arguing very much against that, and he's looking to the damage of that way of looking at us as human beings. You might go on the Francis Lyde, the site, and if you're interested, and just go into the natural law folder and look at the thing on Lewis, and you might go online and listen to the audio because we've had some pretty remarkable discussions that go to tough, tough things, exactly along these lines. Isn't it under general discussions? It's not under natural law. I think it's under general discussions and natural law both. We've got a, we've got some straightening out to do, but... Um, um, sorry. I've been, I was reading it last night and today. The Lewis piece? Yes. Yeah. It is good. And the... Um, what is the uh, essay? It's like something, the innocent bystander or something. Right, right. That's good too. <laughs> yeah, it's by Thomas Merton. Yeah. Um, so on page 100, she takes the her thinking. It's along the same line. It's a consistent line of thinking. But she arrives at this conclusion again, uh, another to an argument. Um She said, suppose you were sitting in judgment in a law court and when, or who, on whom would you decide to pass sentence? The man who had committed the wrong or the man who'd suffered it? I have no hesitation. I would, um, I would satisfy the one who had suffered at the expense. So our, our inclination would be to sympathize with whoever it was that suffered a wrong by somebody else. Um, she says it follows, for this and other reasons, based on the fact that by its own nature, Badness makes men wretched. It's clear that when somebody has done an injury, the misery belongs not to the victim, but to the perpetrator. And she says in a courtroom, this goes back to um, Melody's comment about, you know, the Edenic person in the um, New Jerusalem person, because the argument that she's making right now is that the person who commits the wrong deserves more of our sympathy than the person who is wronged. Now, why would she say that? Because that seems contrary. I mean, here we are with the anti-types again. That seems contrary to what most of us are inclined to believe, and it's contrary to what she says takes place in a court of law. 
on page 100, she says the judge will, you know, but the courtroom orators of the day take the opposite course. They try to excite the sympathy of the court for those who have suffered some grievous painful injury, although a juster sympathy is more due to those who are guilty. Why does she say that? Boethius is turning our world upside down right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see where we all are in the art. Those of us standing on Eden or New where are we on this? Why does she say that? She says that because wicked brings on its own misery. So if you are wronged, it stinks and you get over it. But if you are the wicked one and you continue to let be wicked and not um, not get uh, corrected, then um, you're going to become more and more miserable, more and more wicked, and in the end, your wickedness will be rewarded with something bad, whereas the good person is going to be rewarded in the end. Yeah, good, good memory. Any other, anybody else want to add? I mean, that's basically Flossie's argument. I have, I have also a question about this. So I understand the point that uh, weakness brings its own misery and is bad. But what about when people are a victim and because of that incident, they grow in hate and they grow in like something that they cannot forgive and they they grow away from God or people who don't believe in God and something bad happens and then they become even worse because of that incident yeah who can answer that the whole the whole book is an answer to that I mean it, it's staring us right in the face what's Boethius's answer to that we've been we've been actually responding to that whole problem from the very beginning of the book they need to go back to God. I'm sorry? They need to go back. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Leslie, go ahead. You got your hand up. Go ahead. Well, I think about, you know, what we read in the Bible. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Because... A lot of times we don't know what's been handed to them and what made them do what they did wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that doesn't make me bad to sympathize for the ugliness. It just makes me think that we're capable of being bad also. Yeah. So it makes us all more humble and it's probably the most difficult thing to do in the world. Yeah. I think one of the problems, Maria, the, I mean, the whole book is an answer to that. I mean, it's it's so good that you raised it because um, the whole book remembers about um, good people s suffering from what bad people do to them. So that when somebody is suffered, they can become bitter and angry to feel sorry. I mean, they're in Buita's position. The, the, the problem becomes... Um, um, What's the word? Ex uh, ex Exacerbated. Uh, Exacerbated, thanks. When you live in a society, I mean, the, the, the description of the courtroom here was perfect. If you live in a society which encourages you to believe that you'll only be happy when you get everything you want, we've already talked about pleasure, wealth, food. I mean, you go down the line. 
if you believe that your happiness is going to rest on that and somebody does something to take it away, you're going to get angry. You're going to get... So the whole book is an attempt to take the way the world looks at things and turn it on its head because there's something the world isn't seeing. That so long as we put our desires there, we're going to end up being disappointed all the time. The degree of that disappointment can vary. It can be mild. It can be violent. Somebody can do something to hurt us. Our response, our response can be violence, hate, anger, not forgiving. You know. Boethius is trying to answer all of that in exactly the way I think Leslie, I mean, she went to scripture. I'm avoiding it here. We're avoiding it because what Boethius is doing is not making an argument based on faith or scripture. He's making an argument based on natural reason. This is so crucial to our commitment to bring faith and reason together. Fide Arazzo, faith and reason. What's at the center of our Catholic faith is those two things. The modern world is actually, it's a divorce. They've divided those things. The Protestant world says reason's bad, it's corrupted, it's only faith. And the secular world said it's only reason, no faith. So the center of our faith is bringing both of those things together. The argument that Boethius is making right now is based on natural reason. He's trying to use reason to recover a rational ground. And he's actually making the point that it's only if we recall these things that we can get back to that ground we've lost. And remember that it begins with her saying that philosophy was destroyed. It was the, the Stoics, the Epicureans, that there was this unity of philosophy at some point. I think there, before, when we get to the end of this, I'm going to raise some questions about all, I want to get through Boethius's argument first, but I think that's the most direct answer um, to see to your, to your question, because that happens to all of us Cecilia. in larger, small ways. Sorry. Who's Cecilia? Or, I mean, yeah, Cece. <laughs> if I can, Maria. It's not yeah, she's got Cece. Maria. Cece. She's yeah. all those names. She's got several. Um, I want to, we're getting close to time here. I want to, um, she goes on to make the point, and this is, it's a lead up to what, um, we're going to do in book five. I, I've got to get to this because we don't. She goes on to make the argument that um, that the one who commits the wrong, the one who inflicts suffering on somebody else, is actually in a worse position than the one who suffers it. I mean, we we just covered that. By the way, that's in Plato's Gorgias. It's a she takes it or Boethius takes it directly from Plato. She goes on to say that in the next life that uh, we should feel sorry for somebody, I mean, exactly as, who was it, Melody said it, you know, that our, our sympathy should go for the wrongdoer because all he's doing is um, giving away his life. You know, the other person can be recovered, but somebody who commits himself to do this and keeps doing it and is helpless to do anything about it, is losing his life. That it. That is to put it. To put it more in terms of what M, um, Leslie said, if this. If we were all made in the image of God, that person is losing himself and his ties with God. So he's more to be pitied than somebody who's here. Here. In fact, let me put it to, to make it more realistic. One of Socrates' arguments at the end of his life, when he was put in jail and he knew he's going to be killed, executed, all of his friends came and said, "We'll help you escape." Socrates' answer to that was, no, 
I was raised by the city. The city gives me every good. I have to suffer that because it's um, the person who's committing the wrong is doing a graver thing than the person suffering it. I'm willing to suffer this for the things I love. Socrates, that's before Christ. What did Christ do? Did he strike back at the guy who hit him? Thomas More? I mean, look at all the martyrs. And by the way, I'm not, in, I'm not saying the church is, is uh, espousing pacifism because the church doesn't. Joan of, Joan of Arc was a saint. She hacked men's heads off. I mean, the church allows... No, no, I'm really... I'm, the church allows that. If we become pacifistic, we might as well become Buddhist. Um, the church asks us to do, th- to, you know, to do good. Sometimes to do that, we have to go to war. Sometimes to do that, we have to suffer. I mean... That's the extraordinary beauty, or one of the beauties of our church. But she's saying here that, um, that, that the person who commits the wrong will continue to be glad as punishments pile up on him because they're deserved, for exactly the reason that Melody said. But here, I want to... She gets to this point. This is a crucial point on page... Um, 104 and 5. This is absolutely crucial for where she's going. Middle of 104. The generation of all things, the whole progress of things subject to change and whatever moves in any way receive their causes, their due order, their form from the unchanging mind of God. In the high citadel of its course, the mind of God has set up a plan for the multitude of events. When this plan is thought of as in the purity of God's understanding, it's called providence. When it's thought of with reference to all things whose motion and order it controls, it's called by the name of fate. Now hold on. She's saying, if you look at things from the world's perspective, everything's in chaos. It's like a circle twirling. It's constantly twirling, right? Everything's changing. If you look at things from the point of God, who, can, who created everything, um, everything is seen from his perspective in his efforts to bring good to everything. And she said, before we can get straight on anything, we have to make a distinction between looking at things the way God does or looking at the way humans being. Now, this is crucial because it's setting up for the next class. I mean, yeah, the next, the final one. She's saying, all of this depends on our knowledge, how we know. So let's go back to the beginning. When Boethius said, I'm angry, I'm full of self-pity, was he responding with complete knowledge of his predicament or had he forgotten things? Her argument was that he was forgetting things, that he had to recover his knowledge. She's been helping him to recover his knowledge. Okay. Now she's saying there's two different ways of knowing from the perspective of men, from the perspective of God. On page 105, everything therefore which comes under fate is also subject to providence to which fate itself is subject, but certain things which come under providence are above the chain of fate. Go down. The inmost one comes closest to the simplicity of the center, while forming itself a kind of center for those set outside it to revolve round. The circle furthest out rotates through a wider orbit, and the greater its distance from the indivisible center point, the greater the space it spreads through. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought close to simplicity and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in every stronger chain of fate. 
and everything is freer everything is the freer from fate the closer it seeks the center of things if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of god it's free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate the relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding reasoning means we have to go step by step step understanding means we go aha i see reasoning means we're still in parts understanding means i see it the whole the relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of providence is like between reasoning and understanding between that which is coming into being and that which is between time and eternity between the moving circle and the still point at its center now just to quickly review remember in the earlier stage she said um, that um, very often God allows evil people to do things because um, very often evil people do things. Let's say you let's say you've embezzled a bezel a million dollars, right? But and she makes this argument. This is her argument. The guy who makes that cheat suddenly becomes worried about losing it. So what does he do? He has to be good. He has to learn to depend on good things because what will happen if he depends on the bad people around him? Is everybody following? He knows that if he turns it over to the bad people, they're going to kill him. So very often people who set out to do evil things can actually learn to become good. So Lady Philosophy is telling everybody, she's telling boy this, be careful in the way you see things. Because people who do evil things may be, be, be being led to become good by what's going on in their lives. Conversely, people who think they're good can be led to do bad. By the way, that's right out of the Old Testament. If you're evil and do good things, you will live. If you've been good and you do evil things, you will die. That's God. So here she's saying so much depends on how we see things. If we look at things from the circle in which everything's constantly in change, then everything seems chaotic. We'll be like Boethius at the beginning, or like the people that Maria was describing a minute ago, if somebody hurts you and you get bitter and angry. And If you're on the outside of a circle, everything will seem chaotic, constantly in flux. You may not be able to see through the appearances of things. Lady Philosophy has been taking us, it's into the cave, we've been talking about the cave. She's been taking us through the way things seem to be to get to principles. If you look at things at the center of a circle, you'll see things simply. The difference will be between understanding things rationally, step by step, and grasping a whole. You'll see. The way you see will be closer to God, to that goodness, so the more we struggle to see, the more we struggle to be good, the closer we get to that goodness that we've been talking about, the less we work on it, the harder it is to do it. Hold on one line, two, before we... She says on 108, this is absolutely crucial, often it happens that supreme power is given to good men so that the exuberance of wickedness may be checked. 
Others receive a mixture of good and bad fortune according to the quality of mind. This goes to uh, Maria's question a while ago. Some people are excessively afraid of suffering for which they actually have the endurance. Others are full of scorn for suffering they cannot in fact bear. But, but both kinds she brings to self-discovery through hardships. God lets us suffer this to test to find out who we are. Now the conclusion of all of this comes on page 111, and this is where I want to leave. So, if you stand on the outside of a circle, everything unfolds as if it's according to chance. There's no order, there's no God. Bad people do good things, good people do bad things. Sometimes evil people get rewarded. That's what we've been looking at. What she says right now, if you follow everything she's been saying, if you look at things, nothing's done by chance. God allows freedom to everybody here in the world to do whatever they do, but because he's a good God, he's doing everything he can to bring goodness out of evil. So the conclusion of this on 111 is, do you now see what is the consequence of all we've said? No, no, what is it? He still has some learning to do. No, it isn't. All fortune is certainly good. So the point of which we've arrived is God is all, com he's complete goodness. He is being itself. People can do evil things. Um, she's answered that. But this God is a good God. He's trying to do everything he can to bring good out of evil. So her conclusion is there is, there is no bad fortune. Now, we're past time. What I'd like to do is leave everybody with that. Some of you look perturbed and <laughs> not sure. Um, what I'd like to do next week is start up here and take on any questions you have. If, it might be good to go back over the, you know, the fourth book and just reread it again. So it's a wonderfully well-reasoned presentation of the natural goodness of work in the world and what God's doing with human freedom. It's really impressive. It, it so supports our faith. It goes to what Leslie said a while ago. This is not faith. We're not in scripture. This is evidence of the goodness that natural reason has when it's used well. Um, Marie, I think your mic's on. Here, never mind. Never mind. No, never mind. I'm muted. Um, what, what Boethius is doing is giving us a, an illustration of how good reason can be on its own, apart from faith. So um, you might take a look at the fourth chapter again, just to pull it together. Next week, what I'd like to do is, is pick up here with her conclusion and see what you all have to say about it. And then we'll go to book um, five. One of the turning points in book four is her saying, so much of the way we understand things depend on where we, so much of the way we understand things depends on where we stand, either with God at the center of a circle, in simplicity, understanding, or caught up, you know. One is what she calls the perspective of fate, a destiny where things seem faded. The other is with God, where God's doing something to help bring good out of evil. So they're a, a crucial stage in her, you know, steps leading Boethius towards the end of this journey is 
to make clear that so much depends on how we understand the way we use knowledge. And what she's going to do in book five is distinguish between God's knowledge and ours, and she's going to distinguish between fate and predestination. Um, this is going to go right to the heart, because remember, Calvin said that we were all predestined. Um, Boethius is going to tackle this whole question of fate and predestination. So it's, it's, I, I think chapters 4 and 5 are, are among some of the most profound pieces of writing in the Christian Middle Ages. So let's start here next Tuesday night. We'll, we'll pick up right here at the end of 4 with any questions you guys have. And um, we'll, we'll um, take up chapter 5. I'm going to enter, I'm going to go into next Tuesday night with the idea that we, it might be good to give two classes to what's remaining, you know, to give time so we can do four and five and maybe even put the whole thing back in perspective and go over all sorts of things, what, you know, whatever questions you guys have so we can put the whole thing together. I don't want to rush this and I don't want to close it off arbitrarily. We're going to start Dante. So... For, for now, let's plan to give next week and maybe another week to Boethius before we start Dante. Leslie, is that your husband? Can you, can, can you put your speaker on? Can we, can we meet him? Hi. 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 I'm, I'm Bob. What's your, what's your name? John. Hi, John. Hi, John. Good to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Thanks. He, he can understand these things better than I can, <laughs> so I think I was trying to pull him in. <laughs> she lured me in. We all need it's help. A, it's a very interesting topic, so I, I like to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it is a question that people ask all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It really is. We all need help. We all need help. Um, <laughs> if you, if we could all keep each other in our prayers. Would you please keep us all, each, all of us in each other's prayers? We're really grateful for them. Okay. Um, next week, let's plan to spend time. You know, I'm trying to get through the book. I'm trying to stay close. But I want to reach a point where we step back away from the book and take on whatever questions you have. So let's try to do justice to the book. And then I want to... I want to go wherever you guys want to go with these questions so that they help us relate to our world. And we'll finish the Vespers, these two anti-types, you know, the, the, the Edenic and the Utopian um, next week. Um, Tuesday night. Election night. Um, I'm, I'm trusting that you guys will be okay to meet, even though it's election night. Are you, we, can we all plan to meet? Um, I'm going to plan to meet next Tuesday night with you guys, and then after we stop, I'm going to take a bottle of wine to bed. <laughs> you guys are good. Um, I'm staying uh, up till 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of us. Boy. Of course, this year is going to be three more days. So. Yeah. Okay, um, you all stay safe. It's good to see you. I'm looking forward to seeing you again next week. Melody, um our prayers are going to go with you and your husband. Let your husband know that. I'm assuming you will. 
Um, I will, but just remember, I'm married to Odysseus, so he's a good man. He's handling it much better than I okay, am. Okay, I know, but he's an incredible man. Good. You know? just, thank you. Just, I just, it. just know, Odysseus had to go through a lot of suffering. So, <laughs> okay, you guys, bye, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Turn off the tape recorder? Yeah, I'm doing it.